Are you an attorney that wants to help seniors have peace of mind and not go broke paying for the care that they need? But you also want to make better money than you're making right now. This is Elder Law in a Box. You'll become proficient helpers of the aging. Now your host, certified elder law attorney and past president of the National Elder Law Foundation. This is Elder Law in a Box. And this is Todd Watley. Hey, welcome back. This is Elder Law in a Box. And, I, and today we are talking about um, gifting, finishing with gifting. Today's episode is probably the most important part. Number one, you do need to know this, but today's episode, I am going to talk about some of the planning things we can do with gifting. And honestly, this is where this information can truly make a difference in a client's life and you can prove your worth to them. And this is why we do this work. This is why we as elder law attorneys know these rules, study these rules, and get familiar with this information because this is so important and it's crucial to um, helping clients not go broke and preserve the assets using the rules. Okay, so this is exempt transfers. This is being able to transfer things that will not cause a penalty. And it truly makes a difference in their lives. Okay, so let's get started. You know, you will you you start this out by asking, is there a way to make a gift and not um, create a penalty? And again, let me I've addressed this somewhat before, but let me cover it now. The rules say that only transfers made in contemplation of Medicaid are to be penalized. So how you argue that is if you've got a client in who truly probably did make a gift and truly was not thinking about it. And I, I will show you in future episodes when we do like single person planning, I will show you how we can preserve assets by actually giving them away. So we will do gifts for the purpose of qualifying for Medicaid. However, in that episode, you'll you'll learn how we can actually use current money to um, cover a gift that we made right now or a previous gift that was made prior to them coming to see you. The hope is that they did not give away all of their money, that they still have at least as much money as they gave away because the general rule is using one of the single person planning tools is we can protect half of the money. I'm not going to get into that now. That's a whole nother episode that'll take a full, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Okay. But just understand there are times that we will make gifts and particularly if someone has come in and they've made gifts in the past and we can't use that 50% planning tool with it, they're stuck. And so now you have to argue this gift was made, but it was not in contemplation of Medicaid. And one of the biggest things you can argue is, is that the person did not give away all of their money. There's two things that you argue. Number one, you argue they um, did not give away all of their money. They truly gave money for a purpose. They bought a grandkid a car. They paid the rent for this child who just lost their job. 
you argue legitimate reasons that they did this, but then also, hopefully, if they did not give away all of their money, which they typically don't, you say, look, if they were doing this for the purpose of qualifying for Medicaid, they would have given away all of your money. We do that all the time. We get clients broke by giving away all of their money. They did not do that. They were not doing this in contemplation of Medicaid, so therefore they should not be disqualified for this. And then number two, look at the person's health. If they were perfectly healthy or as healthy as you can be, you know, at that point in your life, but you're definitely not going into a nursing home and then start giving away all of your money, you argue, hey, this person's health was fine. Yeah, they're now applying for Medicaid because they need nursing home care, but two years ago, three years ago, they were up and going and, and doing fine when they bought this car for this grandkid. It was not in contemplation of Medicaid. That was the last thing on their mind. Their health was fine. Everything was great. So you argue that, okay? Then finally, if you just, the other argument is, hey, if you don't buy that argument, then we're going to plead undue hardship. These people do not have the money. The money is gone. Their medical status is such that they have to be in this nursing home. They can't pay for it. So we're asking for undue hardship in this situation. Okay. See what works. Now, you can also avoid a penalty if you give all of the money back. So a cure of the pen, a cure of the gift fixes the penalty which kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, if you give away 50, but that person then gives back $50,000, there is no gift. Okay, we'll talk about partial returns in a later episode. There are times when you can flat out make a gift of something and written in the rules are exemptions to imposing a penalty. And we will talk about two different things. We will talk about the home and then we will talk about other assets beside the home. The rules are similar between those two, but there is some distinct differences with the home, okay? Again, you will find these rules at 42 U.S.C. 1396 P.C. 2, okay? 1396 P, as in Paul, C. 2. This information right here is absolutely gold, all right? Knowing this can truly make a difference in a person's life, and knowing these exemptions will separate you from your competition who just dabble in this and think they know Medicaid and think they know what they're doing. Knowing these rules can truly make a difference in a client's life and can also justify you charging a substantial fee for this because this is crucial. People want to save their home. They want to save other assets. And if the rules have exemptions out there, we should know that and we should use it. So let's talk about the home first. The home can be transferred to a spouse because Medicaid looks at the assets owned by either spouse and Transferring to the other spouse doesn't really matter application-wise, but it does matter if that spouse passes away. You do want the house to be owned by the community spouse alone so that at most the spouse in the nursing home gets the spousal share 
under the probate rules for your state, and that's less than the full amount. Whereas if you leave the house as a jointly owned asset and the community spouse passes away, now the institutionalized spouse owns it, and that's a problem, all right? So transferring the, the home completely to the community spouse makes sense and helps preserve, if not all of it, at least part of it. You can also transfer your home to a child who is under the age of 21 or a child who is blind or permanently disabled, not under 21. Okay, so if they're under 21, pure, simple, yes, we don't see that a whole lot in elder law. There's not many people going into nursing homes that have children under the age of 21, but it it does happen. And if that child is living there, you can then give that house to them. But what's beautiful is when there is a disabled child, even grown, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, and the child is on Social Security disability, you know, they don't have to be on, on disability, but that's a great way to prove that they are disabled. You can actually give the house to that disabled child with no penalty. There's also an interesting rule out there that I see typically with grown siblings who never married and, you know, they've just always lived in the same house together. They just, that's just how they've done it. And so a sibling with a equity interest in that house can be given the other person's share of that house with no penalty if the person has lived there for a year. So they have to live there one year, at least one year, and have a equity interest and be a sibling, but you can transfer the applicant's interest in that house to the sibling. Now, here is the best rule. Well, not the best. The disabled child is a great rule, but this one actually makes sense and and will surprise people that it's there. It is called the child caregiver rule. So, This happens a lot, and people don't know that there's actually an exception out there. And again, this is where you knowing these rules makes a tremendous difference in these people's lives, particularly crisis planning, but it really makes a difference in pre-planning. And so what the rule is, if a child moves into the home of a parent, and because they live there for two years, primarily keeping that person out of a nursing home. So the the parent has declined, the child moves in, starts caring for them, and because that child moved in with that parent, prevents that person or helps keep that person from having to go to a nursing home, after two years, you can give the house to that caregiver child with no penalty. It's a beautiful rule. And it's really great when it has just naturally happened and they come in, they've never seen you before, and they say, oh, by the way, I've been living with mom for three years and now she needs to go into the nursing home. Are we going to lose the house? And you're like, no, you're not. So it's a great rule for crisis planning, but it's even a better rule for pre-planning. And if someone is coming into you to say, hey, hey, Todd, um, mom's getting bad, but she's not nursing home bad. She just needs some help. And, you know, should I move in with her or can she move in with me? What are the rules? Well, 
you go through this and say, if you move in with mom and you live there for two years, we can then give that house to you and it's protected. And you're like, that's great, but I don't want to live in mom's house. Okay. Understand that. What if we move mom in with us? Well, the rule doesn't work. However, your planning, your understanding of these rules works this way. And so just think about what normally happens in this situation. Parent gets bad, not too bad, but Bad enough that they move in with the child. Mom sells her house. Let's say she sells it for $200,000. Mom gets the money from her house, puts it in a savings account, and just sits on it. She moves in with daughter, lives there two, three years. Now she gets bad, and she really does need to go into a nursing home. Well, now she goes into the nursing home, and she has $200,000 in her bank account. As you will learn, or if you know, with a single person applying for Medicaid, we can protect about half of their assets. So with $200,000, we're going to lose about half or $100,000 before we can get her qualified for Medicaid. All right. But with some planning, and if you listen to me and, and say, hey, here's what you can do when mom moves into your house she has $200,000, would $200,000 at least pay off your mortgage and be about half of the value of your home or more, okay? So if daughter has a $400,000 house and has less than a $200,000 mortgage, mom can actually give daughter that $200,000 and she actually buys daughter's house, okay? Medicaid is perfectly okay if the applicant gets a really good deal. They just can't overpay. And so paying $200,000 for a $400,000 house is perfectly fine with Medicaid because non-countable, they put a lien on it at death. However, you do the deed so that um, if mom passes away, it then goes to the daughter, but that's, that's later. The issue is mom buys the house, lives there, and then after two years, well, when, when mom buys the home, now the daughter is living in mom's house, okay? Mom bought the house. It's her house. The daughter is now living in mom's house. After two years, we can now give mom's house back to daughter without a penalty. So we've used the $200,000 to buy the house. We've now given the house back to the daughter. When mom goes into the nursing home, she is broke and instantly qualifies for Medicaid, and we've protected all of the money. Pretty cool tool, huh? All right, how do you prove those two years? Okay, number one, the child caregiver um, needs to have lived there two years. I recommend you get a letter from a physician going back two years to say, yeah, I remember you moved in. Mom would have needed nursing home care or something. So, yes, get a letter from the doctor. You can get an affidavit from the child, which is kind of self-serving. Ideally, get a letter from neighbors, which will work, okay? Meet the neighbors, talk to the neighbors, let them know that the child is moving in, and just kind of let that be known. But actually... I've not found it to be too difficult to prove that. The state has really not made us jump through too many hoops to actually prove that. And so um, we've not had too much difficulty doing that. All right. So the um, the sibling rule, to prove that, you have to show that they've made 
some payments they do have a equity interest in the home and they have to have been there one year. So both of these cases, the child caregiver, child caregiver and the sibling get some mail with your name on it to make sure that you can show this bill came two years ago or more with my name on it at this address, which proves that I live there. Okay. All right, let's take a quick break. Do you have clients who are over-resourced for Medicaid, but interested in accelerating Medicaid eligibility while preserving their assets? Your clients may want to consider purchasing a Medicaid-compliant annuity, MCA. MCAs are specialized insurance solutions offered by only a handful of insurance companies. To learn more about MCAs, reach out to Amber Hines at Ashper. Ashper is a nationally licensed organization that helps clients achieve Medicaid eligibility through the use of MCAs. Ashper hosts monthly educational webinars pertaining to various Medicaid planning topics. To learn more, visit ashper.com or call 888-441-1595. You're listening to the ELIAB podcast, Elder Law in a Box. Here's your host, Todd Watley. All right. Thanks, Amber. And you're actually going to talk about those specific annuities here in just a second, okay? All right. So any other asset, okay? Not just the home, but any other asset. So those can be transferred to the spouse, okay, or to a third party for the sole benefit of the spouse. Be careful there. States are very picky about the sole benefit issue, and it's kind of hard to prove. So, I've, you know, typically the spouse we're giving it to is the community spouse. They're not disabled. They're they're okay, and so we just do it. You can also do a trust that is just for the benefit of the, the spouse, and I would probably do that if the spouse was incapacitated, could not manage their funds and may do bad things with this money. You, you put it in a trust with someone else being trustee, but you, you have to have the sole benefit of that trust be the spouse. Okay. Um, again, you can give money to a disabled child or to a trust established solely for the benefit of a disabled child. So such as a special needs trust, third party special needs trust. Okay. Beautiful tool works great. All right. To a trust solely for the benefit of a disabled person who is under the age of 65. So if it's not a child, you can actually give it to any other person who is technically disabled, but under the age of 65 or in a trust, but it again has to be a sole benefit trust, sole S-O-L-E benefit trust. So real quick, we'll cover those examples right there. Who can the home be transferred to without a penalty? Spouse, sibling with an equity interest, disabled child, child under 21, or the child caregiver. Okay. And all other assets, basically to the same people other than the sibling or the child caregiver that is only for the home. So let's talk about the annuities, okay? That is a great way that we can convert assets into income, and it's a transfer, okay? The the rules actually say the purchase of a annuity will be penalized unless... 
certain things occur. And this is the requirements for a Medicaid qualifying annuity. Um, that is, number one, the state has to be named as the first beneficiary after the spouse or a disabled child if there is one. Okay, but like in your gifting um, tools, when we do gifts, the way we cure the gift is with a annuity. And in those situations with a single person, the, the state has to be the initial first beneficiary. The state then, as a beneficiary, gets the amount paid out on behalf of the person who's applied for Medicaid. Okay, so they don't get all of it unless that person's bill with Medicaid has gone extremely high. This annuity must be irrevocable and non-assignable. Those are two crucial requirements of this annuity. It has to be actuarially sound, which means it, it has to pay within the life expectancy of the beneficiary. So if they're 99, you can't do a 10-year annuity. You have to do it within their life expectancy, which is generally not a problem, except when you do have the older person doing large gifts, creating a large penalty, and then you will have difficulty getting the, the annuity to fit within that actuarially sound requirement if the person's life expectancy is not that long. Those payments from the annuity have to be equal payments with no balloon payment. That was a tool used back before DRA that they would do annuities, which says the annuity is not a countable resource. And so therefore they would do this annuity with a very low monthly payment with this huge balloon payment, probably paying out after the person passed away. It was a way to protect large sums of money and DRA did away with that. So the current rule says it must be equal payments with no balloon payment. The rules are slightly different if you're using an IRA to purchase this Medicaid qualifying annuity. And I would suggest that you call Amber at Ashper, run that by her. She knows those rules extremely well, and she can help you craft that annuity to meet those guidelines. And she does a fantastic job of, at that. All annuity interests must be disclosed, okay? When we do this annuity, we tell Medicaid, yes, we made this transfer, but we transferred it to an annuity that you have to accept and allow. Those rules are under 42 U.S.C. 1396PC1G, all right, as in Georgia. There's also a CMS letter, uh, 7-06, a the CMS letter explains how this works. Um, practice tip real quick. When you are wanting to do this, if the client is very involved with their financial planner, if you're on their stock, well, this is an annuity. My financial guy sells annuities. Can they do it? I would caution you greatly to say, I doubt it but they won't understand that. And a good financial advisor will look at this and say, yeah, I'm not touching that. Some other financial advisors who hate to lose money and really love annuities and think they can do it will say, oh yeah, I can do this. Well, I will be surprised if they do. There are very few companies that do it. 
And you have to know exactly what you're doing. And if you don't meet every single requirement of this Medicaid qualifying annuity, it will be a countable resource or it will be deemed a gift. And that messes up the entire case. And that's a problem. If they demand to use their financial advisor, I advise you to have them sign a letter that basically discharges you of any liability on that and do not give that advisor any advice on that because if they mess it up and they come back and say, well, I did what you told me to, that's a huge problem. So I, you know, I will let them use their advisor, but I will tell them I will be very surprised if they do it and if they do it correctly. And I am not taking responsibility for this part of your case being messed up if you use them and put that in writing and have them sign it. I I would just tell them, look, I've got a person, this company, this is what they do. They do it correctly and call Amber Gwynn at Asper and just do it that way. Okay. Real quick, I want to get through this. I know this is a long episode, but I just wanted to get into these And I'll spend time on each of these individually, but I just want to let you know these are exempt transfers, times that you can transfer money and not cause a problem. There are three trusts, actually, that you can use that transfers into these trusts will not cause a penalty. So number one is a self-settled or a first-party special needs trust. This is a trust established for the benefit of a disabled person who is under the age of 65. So this is that person's money that they have inherited. They have gotten a lawsuit settlement or or in some way they have money. They were on Medicaid and this money is going to cause problems. The Medicaid rules allow this person to create a trust to hold this money and it does not kick them off of Medicaid. It is typically set up by a parent, grandparent, legal guardian court. That was the rules up until a few years ago, but now the disabled person themselves can actually create this trust for themselves. Up until a few years ago, we had to jump through these hoops to actually get this created. Now, thankfully, the disabled person themselves can create the trust. To be valid, this trust has to have a payback provision, which means any money left in this trust at the death of the Medicaid recipient has to go to the state to reimburse them for the care that they have provided. If you do not put a payback provision in this trust, it is not valid and does not work. All right. I want to bring up not part of the exempt trust per se, but um, you may be thinking, well, I've heard of first party trust and a third party trust. A third party trust is a estate planning tool that is not in federal law. It is it is not addressed anywhere by that because it it is simply estate planning. But that is where someone else puts money into a trust like this one, has a whole lot of the same language about protecting Medicaid and all of that, but a third party party special needs trust does not have a payback provision and should not have a payback provision. It is malpractice to put a payback provision in a third party special needs trust. Don't do it. It's only in a first party because the state lets you stay on Medicaid and and benefit from this money. Therefore, they want whatever's left. 
that is also known as a D4A trust because it is at 42 USA 1396P D4A. Our next trust is Income Only Trust, the also known as a Miller Trust. I do a whole podcast on Miller Trust because they drive me crazy. And there are specific rules that just do not make sense. And so a Miller Trust is a trust used when a person's income is too high and they live in a state that is a income cap state, meaning that you can make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. So therefore you have to put at least some, if not all of your income into this trust. It's irrevocable. The state is the beneficiary and they basically tell you how to spend money out of this trust. I encourage you to listen to my Miller Trust podcast episode where I go through all of that. That is at 42 USC 1396 P D4B. Okay, so that is a D4B trust. Now we get to pool trust. Pool trust is very similar to a self-settled special needs trust, except it is run by a nonprofit association. It is a nonprofit who has said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to help disabled people. And typically... I have used a pool trust when the funds are not that great. You need a you know a fair amount of funds to be able to pay for the um, first party special needs trust. It cost us money, expertise to do those, and so we charge for those. And then you you need a trustee to run it, which typically I recommend a commercial trustee, and they are going to charge if there's not enough money in the trust to pay all of those fees, you then generally start to look at a pooled trust, P-O-O-L-E-D, trust. And that's where this nonprofit takes all of these pooled trust funds and puts it together so that there's the economy of scale so that they can invest and manage and meet the request of the beneficiaries. One of the requirements is there are separate accounts, obviously, the the Money has to be specifically seen as different, but they can put it all together and be able to run this trust fund with all of the funds together. Okay, There is also a payback provision here. However, part of the nonprofit's ability to be licensed by the state to do this is they have to have some type of agreement that, yeah, the, the state is going to get some of the money from this pool trust if there is any left when the when the person passes away, but also they, as a nonprofit, get to keep some of that money to help pay expenses. Okay. Now, theoretically, a person over the age of 65 can establish a pool trust, but in some states allow that, but some states don't. And that is in 42 USA 1396 P D4C. So this is known as a D4C trust. Now, CMS actually recommends that there be a penalty if a person over the age of 65 puts money into a um, pooled trust. And that is a May 12, 2008 State Agency Regional Bulletin, if you're curious. I work under the Eighth Circuit, and they have ruled that transfers by a person over the age of 65 into a pooled trust shall be penalized. So 
that's a very common situation that you'll see. All right, so there are exempt transfers. My, hopefully my one podcast that went 33 minutes, but I'm sorry. But a lot of information, a lot of good things that you need to know to be able to do elder law and to advise clients. But the information in this podcast is gold. I'm telling you, you can truly make a, a family's day when it's like, hey, you're the child caregiver. We can give this house to you with no penalty. They're like, but wait, I thought there was a penalty when you transfer things. Yeah, there is normally, but in this situation, you fall within a very limited exemption under the rules. We can give you this house. Or if there is a disabled child, we can give you this house. And it's just beautiful. The people are happy. They love you and you can charge appropriately for that. Okay. So hopefully this helped. And if you have questions, please, as always, you can email me at Todd at elderlawinabox.com. You've been listening to Elder Law in a Box, helping you help seniors have peace of mind and not go broke paying for the care that they need. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. But it doesn't stop here. If you want to learn more about letting Todd be your elder law coach, find him at www.elderlawinabox.com and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all at Elder Law in a Box. Thanks for listening. Until next time.